Hello and welcome to the Emotion of Wit podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and I am incredibly excited today because um, I first had the um, thought of doing this podcast back in November or December I think it was, it might have been earlier than that, back in 2017 uh, and it's just taken us a while to, to get together to do the recording for today so I am incredibly excited about, um, about what we're going to get into today and the topics we're going to explore. So today is about um, Emotion of Work in Humanising work um, if I can say the word work again in, in that many times in one sentence and and it comes from I think it started from a tweet or a comment on LinkedIn um, around uh, bureaucratization or bureaucratizing things um, and then that prompted a discussion between myself and our guest today um, which we then had a Skype and then I got really excited on the Skype call that we had I was like we need to do a podcast on this it'd be amazing um, and then we've uh, we finally got around to organizing it and pulling it together for today so without further ado let's get our guest on the air and let's welcome along Sarah Taylor hi Sarah hi Phil how are you yeah, very well, thank you. Now that we've got past our slight technolo- technological hitch this morning. <laughs> yeah, we got there in the end, though, didn't we? We had mul- we did. multiple ways and means of recording, so we got there in the end. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> um, so what I'd like to do then is to start, as I start all of my podcasts then, with a um, an unexpected but innocuous question. So it's a, a different way, I guess, of getting to know our guests without asking you to tell us, you know, to do the classic kind of... Um, what do you do and where do you come from type thing. <laughs> um, so let's start with, um, so my, my uh, innocuous yet unexpected question today is what lines have been crossed uh, either with you or for you recently? Ooh, wow. Okay. Um, what lines have been crossed recently? That's one to, I want you to think about. Mm. As all the best questions usually do lead you to have to think a little bit, hey. So one uh, one for me is um, I have like this this thing, I don't know if it's a value, but Mm. like when when I hear people um, talk or when I see people having discussions on social media, Mm. um, I have a thing about like I want contributions to be helpful or, or I can see some kind of helpful intent behind what it is. So if some, you know, if there's a contribution to a discussion or um, you know, somebody's passing comment on something that that I, I work really hard to see, like the how is that helping? You know, so so how, what's the what's the helpful intent that sits behind that comment or question? And there was one recently um, that just got me really cross because I, I I spent I, I reckon it must have been at least twenty minutes, if not half an hour, trying to come up with a way that it was helpful, and it just wasn't. And and it was somebody that I know fair, fairly well, and and it, and it surprised me because um, it's not something that kind of I would normally expect um, to see in in that way. Normally, you know, so when I when I see or, or hear their contributions, I think oh, I can see where that's coming from. But this one is just like I just didn't get it, and it really annoyed me because I was like, yeah, it just got me to thinking. I don't, I don't see how that's helpful. I don't see how yeah. that is in, in any way kind of helpful or contributing to. Um, you know, either contributing to the discussion or contributing to, um, you know, kind of furthering, uh, yeah, furthering the debate or being, yeah, I just, I couldn't, I really struggled to find some helpful intent behind it. Uh, yeah. And then I went into all this analysis work that around, why has, why has that made me so angry? Why has that made me, <laughs> why has that made me really cross? Um, but I think that what that kind of got me to the point of, I have a line, which is that I need to be able to see, or I want to see some, some helpful intent behind something. And when I don't, it, yeah, that then makes me go, hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that is kind of triggering quite quite a lot for me actually in terms of just how we have debates at the moment, whether it's it's in person or, or using social media, as you say. And it does remind me of a line as an audience member, actually. I went along to a really fascinating talk and, and book signing by somebody called Rupert Sheldrake. Oh, OK. Come across. Yeah. No. So, you know, he writes some really quite interesting things around um, science and spirituality and how... You know, in, in, in his mind, the two need not and, and are not separate and contradictory. And he's had a, a fascinating kind of life and, and work that's led up to that and written lots of books. So if you wanted to look into that, um, I would suggest Googling. But yeah. I went along to this talk thinking, you know, gosh, that'd be really interesting. He's written this new book about um, spiritual practices for daily life, something like that. I've got the title wrong, but that was the kind of gist of it. And he talks about things like gratitude uh, modern day pilgrimages, um, really kind of interested things. Um, and what was really, really fascinating was not, well, the talk itself was fascinating, but more so was the audience participation afterwards. Okay. Some really, really kind of insightful, thoughtful, genuinely kind of seemed curious questions um, about all sorts, really, you know, and he was able to really brilliantly respond to all of these, um, but with such humility. That was the thing that really inspired me and stood out that this guy clearly knows so much about such a vast range of topics and yet was often prepared to say, Do you know, that is something that is at the limits of human understanding and we cannot be too flippant or too certain when we talk about these things. You know, okay. Someone had asked him about quantum mechanics, something like that, um, and, and that was his view. But, but the thing that, that relates to what you were saying, and I suppose the line that was crossed for me was an audience member who um, <laughs> quite dogmatically asserted that what he'd heard was a load of nonsense and um, because uh, something of interest to him hadn't been cited as, as being part of these practices, you know, it was all a load of nonsense. And, you know, how come he hadn't looked at it from this angle? And, and the guy responded with humility again and said, well, you know, there are different frameworks for, for coming at these things. To which the audience member replied, no, <laughs> this is the framework, the only framework. And it was just quite fascinating because oh, previously wow. the discussion had been about dogmatism and, you know, what is this need for humans to, to feel this sense of certainty and to feel right? And yeah, how we're not so great at, at, at doubt and, and sitting with uncertainty. So it's quite, quite amusing in some ways. Um, that then we got this very, very dogmatic question that followed. So, yeah, totally. Um, so I guess a line was was kind of crossed there, even though it wasn't directed yeah, at yeah, me. Yeah. You know, I felt uncomfortable listening to it, and it was such a shame, really. But, it, you know, it didn't seem to phase the, the speaker at all, and then he responded really quite quite kindly, I thought, considering. So, but, yeah, you do, you do see a lot of that, it seems now. People really want to get their points across at, at, at all costs and the intention seems to be to be right you know to kind of win win something rather than be curious expand people's thinking so yeah that's mm. that's definitely a trigger and, and i guess um so I, i'm going to use that then as a segue into um into where we're going so that 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 want to be of certainty and to be right and um you know, to to know what's happening and, and what's what the either what's happening now or to know that our understanding of the world is accurate and that sort of thing 
I guess in terms of some of your uh, some of your research and some of your studies, then the period of uh, of the period that work is in now in that sh- you know that shift from if you know, if we go with that shift around being from from a kind of a more mechanistic industrial um, age or way of working to a more kind of humanistic way of working, I guess that 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 would then by definition bring with it those elements of uncertainty and lack of clarity and, and, and having to question and, and doubt our experiences, our practices and, and, and what we've done. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, so, so a big theme of, of what I was looking at was this idea of paradigm change or, or shifting worldviews. And as you say, kind of moving away from um, being heavily invested in this this mechanistic industrial worldview to something else. And, and there seems to be um, a yearning for more human ways of working. Um, and yet we can't be too, I, I don't think we can be too prescriptive or too certain about what, what is emerging, you know, what is next for our fundamental ideas about what it means to be human, what it means to work in human ways. Um, human nature is is constantly evolving and and I think you know it might be useful to to theorize and and wonder about what's next um thinking about utopias potentially um different ways of working but yeah yeah, there has to be some kind of uh humility and doubt and for me it's about a spirit of inquiry rather than trying to lock these things down or, or get into arguments about definitive ideas of of the future really yeah if we're kind of on the edge of something then it's a little bit like um it's not a straight line into the future it's this curved line and and you can't see around the curve so um and and there are there is a model called theory u based on that very idea that the future is emerging and and you can't just predict it and, and work backwards from this known future state because it it is uncertain and it's kind of around the corner rather than straight in front of you so Mm. yeah how how do you work wisely with that I guess is a is a good question oh I see now you give me a lead in and I really want to ask I I want to play that question back to you but before I do that um I guess I I want to start on a bit more of a personal note if that's all right so so uh, you know how did you Kind of what 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 took you or 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 pulled you or pushed you or dragged you or whatever mo- <laughs> movement based metaphor I'm going to use, um, you know how, how did you find this stuff then? How, you know, where did it all start for you? Um, so I suppose part of it started back when I was an undergraduate. I studied philosophy, and I was always really interested and grew more interested throughout that time in how our ideas about being human, you know, what it means to be a human, actually shape our realities, shape how we organise our workplaces, how we organise society. Um, and, and I, I would get, and I still do get quite frustrated. Here's another line, actually, that, that can be crossed with me when people think, oh, you know, philosophy or some of the social sciences, it's it's just hot air or it's just theorising, but it, it's not connected to reality. Okay. Um, and I kind of think, well, it absolutely, it really fundamentally shapes our reality. You know, we talk about root causes of things. Um, I guess I was always interested in root ideas, if you like. So how do our beliefs um, ultimately shape how we do things? Um, so that was kind of this this interest that I had um, combined with always being really, I suppose the context of that for me was always healthcare, health and well-being. 
uh, but health in the the wider sense. You know, what what does it mean to live a good life, to thrive, not just to be absent of of disease? Um, and became quite interested in you know in our current times the kind of things that we seem to be afflicted by and as well as of course we've still got infections we've still got diseases that require treatment but we've got these so-called diseases um if you like mm. as well you know so what, what what's that all about so i suppose that was my kind of um question that that motivated me to to pursue that line of study and then ultimately um Workwise to get involved with the NHS and then with a local authority, health and social care department. Um, and at that time, you know, um, feeling a little bit myself, often frustrated, um, feeling a little bit disenchanted with with how we do things. Um, feeling a little bit sometimes like a cog in a machine and you know that I was working for you know I've been lucky enough to have fantastic managers wonderful teams been involved with some really exciting projects and yet I just felt there was something about working in a large bureaucratic organization that could sometimes have this deadening effect this stifling effect um yeah just just that thing of bureaucracy really so mm. I was kind of having that that frustration combined with these interests in well I wonder why <laughs> you know I wonder why um, we have got ourselves into a place where we organize ourselves this way and um, I, I'd often had a wondering about doing further studies I am quite quite a geek um, I love reading <laughs> love learning um, so I had often wondered would I go back to academia would I do a PhD um, and I always remember actually being given some advice by um, one of my lecturers back when I was an undergrad um, and she always said you know if, if you're thinking about doing a PhD do it because it would be an end in itself so even if it didn't change anything really in, in your life or your career do it because it's a topic that you know you would just love to explore in depth for that length of time and it would be worth doing regardless so I always had that in my mind um, and never really never really saw a place that my interests would neatly fit within um, a kind of school or a discipline. Yeah. And then I came across um, this, I can't remember how I came across it now, but this this work called The Fifth Wave of Public Health. And what this did was it kind of charted developments in public health, so the way we organised our health systems um, and thought about health uh, since the Enlightenment to, to basically now. And they thought of these ideas of waves as kind of like a metaphor for paradigms, you know, ways yeah. of thinking. And they were really interested in, in root ideas as well and kind of how our ideas about human nature, um, what it means to live a good life, what's important, actually gave rise to these different ways of organising healthcare. And what they said was, um, we've had kind of four waves up until now. And, you know, they've all been different. They've all had their unique features, but they've all been kind of this part of this modernist overall wave. And what they asked was, what is next for the health of society? What would a fifth wave in public health look like? And and they also recognised um, feeling that the fourth waves are quite mechanistic, had an external fix it. Oh, we've been cut off. Hello. Hello. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> oh no, that's okay. It might have even been me. I'm not sure. Um, um, so I had you. I had you up to what's the fifth wave? 
Ah, okay, so what's the fifth wave? Um, yeah, so basically they're asking about what's next and they recognise that the previous four waves had at their heart a kind of external fix-it approach, um, that systems would, would fix things for us, uh, mechanistic, bureaucratic, and so what's next? And they wondered about, you know, what a more human relationship-focused fifth wave would look like that, that addressed these diseases, um, as they okay. called them, of modernity. And, and they kind of saw, you know, that there's been some brilliant things, you know, um, anaesthetic dentistry. My, my supervisor would often talk about, you know, who w would want to give that up? Nobody. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, not knocking these brilliant advances that this kind of um, worldview gave rise to. But what they're kind of saying is for the challenges that we're facing now, you know, aging population, loneliness, obesity, addictions actually there's a different mindset that's going to be helpful here so we're experiencing diminishing returns of this previous worldview and potentially also adverse effects and so actually giving rise to some of these um, mm. challenges that we see so i became fascinated by that and thought well, brilliant um, discovered that the one of the lead authors was in fact um an academic at Glasgow University approached him with a very kind of broad idea for, for a PhD um, and we got chatting and I was fortunate enough because he was going to be retiring that I became his last ever um, doctoral student that he supervised wow. and yeah I just had this sense of brilliant this is somewhere that I can fit you know um, so that's really what led up to, to doing the PhD. Wow it's an amazing story. <laughs> It's a long story. Sorry about no, that. No, 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 not at all. Um, but and there's lots of different aspects that that within it. So, just to sort of, I guess, check my understanding on something for a moment. So, the um, sorry, I'm distracted. Somebody's trying to FaceTime mm. me. That was weird. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, so the you talked about the um. Uh, the large bureaucratic bit and you being frustrated by that plus your curiosity on these root um, not root causes you call them root ideas is that right root ideas yeah, yeah. so is that so the, the the what popped into my head and I want to check that my understanding is accurate um, is the the, the there's a there's a and is it fair to say I'm going to say it now anyway so there's a there's a narrative that um we have an aging population and that aging population are a burden on society because they are draining resources. They are draining time. They are draining money. Um, you know, those physical and non-physical resources are being drained by that elderly aging population who, who are living longer, which is causing society issues. Um, and, and so what that then does is that influences public perception, it influences um, public decision-making, it influences government policy, that sort of thing. So is that an example, and I'm happy for you to say, no, you're wrong, Phil, because I, I am often <laughs> wrong, but is that an example of a, of, a, of a root idea and how it then shapes what happens as a result? Yeah, no, no, I would say you're, you're, you're right there. I think that's, that's that, that narrative that we've got around... The, the burden, if you like, of, of an ageing population, the idea that we even see it as a, as a problem in society absolutely kind of shapes our ideas. I guess what um, I, I would probably go even further than that and, and have really in the thesis of saying, OK, so what what's given rise to the idea of ageing? 
been a problem. And there's a couple of root ideas that, that I found give rise to that. So my PhD was a little bit like being a detective <laughs> at yeah, times, yeah. which made it quite interesting because you ask questions like that, you, you chat to people and you see where it goes. Um, so some of the things really are quite fundamental. So you go back to what our beliefs um, in kind of Western enlightenment thought if you like are around what it means to be human and you know to put it in a crude simplistic way there's this idea of being a human is this rational independent actor if you like mm-hmm. so of course aging becomes problematic when aging is associated with losing some of those rational cognitive functions with with losing some of this independence you know and then that's not to make a judgment about all aging or that you know you, that happens to everybody but um brilliant book by atul gawandi uh, what matters in the end i think it's called you know he, he kind of talks about if if independence is what we live for you know how how do we make sense of a meaningful life when for many of us losing independence uh, will be a reality in in the latter years of life yeah, and, okay. and then you've got this kind of thing around the, the history of care for older people. So um, briefly, the, these ideas that come from that that have shaped, again, the idea of, of older people being a burden. Um, so you look at when um, sort of care homes came about on the back of when there was different ways to access care, you had the what are now the you know the teaching hospitals, mm-hmm. these um, brilliant medical specialisms that were attracting so much um, and, and rightly so kind of attention around wonderful medical cures and, and treatment. And there was something around the fact that for for older people and for people with disabilities that for whom a, a treatment approach just it just doesn't apply. They didn't attract the same um, funding, the same attention, the same kind of uh, kudos, I suppose, as, as a medical specialty. Um, so it became seen as something secondary. And even in the beverage report, quite fascinating, it warns against being lavish to old age and, and unproductive members of society. So even right back then, you've got this kind of, belief there about you know um, older people not being productive because you can't cure them you know really Mm. what's so all these kind of things um and so what happened when geriatrics emerged as a as a special discipline yeah yeah. as a discipline exactly they almost had to kind of prove themselves within this prevailing discourse that was all around uh, fixing things treating things um and to fit within this dominant discourse rather than compete with it, they presented themselves as, you know, well, we can we can free up hospital beds by, OK, not curing um, these things, but by restoring some kind of functionality, some sort of independence to people so they can be discharged, free up beds that are needed um, in these medical facilities. So you, you've kind of from the very beginning got people that are not trying to well, I suppose they're trying to solve the wrong problem. The, the problem was how do we free up these hospital beds? So from way back, you've got these inherited ideas about what, what it is to age, what it means to care for an older person. Um, and I guess when you think about industrialization, you know, all, all the things that we know about, standardization of tasks, economies of scale, all these kind of ideas caring um, can become seen as an action to be performed 
and you look at the language of caring, you know, products of care, packages of care, very much fitting with this narrative of industrialized ways of doing things. So, yeah, you inherit a way of a way of thinking about care as something to do rather than a way of being. So those are some examples of the kind of root ideas that, that I was exploring. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> so, so I guess you've elements of, of linguistics and language then within that. So you, you mm. gave some examples of the, you know, the packages of care, the processes of care, um, rather than, uh, rather than care being a way of being. So, I'd like to pick up on the last one a little bit more. So tell me a bit more your thoughts on that then. So about care as a way of being. Yeah, so care as a way of being, I think for its root idea, it depends on an idea of the self as being something that's relational. So there's people that talk about relational care. Um, Martin Martin Buber, he talks about the you know, rather than having an I-it relationship, he talks about an I-thou relationship. And the okay. I-it relationship, that's kind of characterized by, you know, I'm an I, so I've got my subjectivity, but you're an it. So there's some detachment there, some some objectivity. Um, the I-thou relationship is much more this kind of genuine connection um, of two subjects meeting. Um, and you really respond to the, the, the specific uniqueness of that individual and that relationship. And, and crucially, you're both changed by that encounter. It's not like one of you is this static, static self. And so if you have those ideas about what it means to be human, um, it's quite natural that caring um, contains, you know, it's, it's a way of being um, as well as an action, you know, don't get me wrong, we're not saying this is um, good versus bad here, but yeah, yeah. just that maybe the, the caring as a way of being has been neglected in, in this worldview. So, yeah, so caring as a, as a way of being is much more about those internal states, so being really present with somebody, um, being empathetic, being, being attuned to their states, and, and being in a, in a reciprocal relationship. So it's not that this um, older person is just a passive recipient that you just kind of care for you know you're together there in a relationship and, and both changed by it so you, you can't kind of just see it as an action that isn't affected by emotional inner states and I, and I guess the term caregiver you know uh, uh, presupposes that I it kind of relationship rather than I thou would you say yeah yeah totally totally yeah hmm so, so what did your what did your re- and I know this is a really big question. Um, so it might be that we need to come back to it and review it a couple of times. So, I, I guess I think what we've been trying to do is to, is to set a um, a philosophical slash theoretical backdrop to the to to the discussion and your findings in your research so far. So, thinking about it from a all right, we've got um, we've got this. Um, the shift in 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 the world where we're moving from one which is standardized and um <clears throat> rationalized and and con, you know and consistent and stable to one actually which is much more in flux and uh, you know like you said we can we can see the corner but not what's coming around it um and and so how did how does that link into what you found in your research then okie doke so 
I guess a big part of the research focus was uh, very practical. So I know we've spoken a lot about the, the theory and the philosophy, mm. if you like, um, but um, it was a case study. So it was a case study of care homes for older people. And I guess what I was really interested in is, okay, so let's say that we are experiencing this shift or we're on the edge of, of some great shift. Well, okay, that's fine. And, and we could spend time, you know, focusing on a, a critique of, of the previous way of doing things, or we could focus on the future and what's emerging. But actually, what I was quite interested in was, well, what, what is it like to, to be on the edge um, of a great shift? You know, what's happening right now for people in this messy time of transition where the old worldview um, will be still exerting a very dominant influence in the way that we do things, the way we think about things. Uh, but equally, we might experience signs or seeds of, of the new in, in what we're doing. Um, lots of new ideas, um, yearning, if you like, striving for different ways of doing things, yeah. experiments. Um, so what is it like for people um, right now that are on the edge of all this and experiencing these these kind of messy times um, of the old diminishing and the new arising. Mm. So, and because of my interest in care and because of my role at the time was involved with a kind of quality improvement program uh, in care for older people in the in, in a local authority, and I'll just say a local authority because it's um, it's not named in the thesis as, oh, okay. as part of the, the confidentiality. Um, so, yeah, so it was really kind of getting to know, well, what, what are the experiences of frontline care workers and also domestic staff that, that worked in these care homes? Because um, as it turned out, you know, they've got just as much a huge part to play uh, in the life of the care home. And also for, for care home managers and senior managers that, you know, um, they're there's a great phrase, I um, can't remember who says it now, I think it's the International Futures Forum, that what we're trying to do at the moment in, in life in some ways is redesign the plane whilst keeping it in the air, you know? So okay. we're still trying to do what we've got to do whilst doing these transformational things. So what's that like for, for care workers, for managers and, and senior managers? So, and I was exploring their experiences in light of these root ideas, Um if you like, and also some perspectives from, from people that, that do theorise about what might be emerging. So, yeah, okay. um, there's been lots of, lot, there was lots of talk at the time around this term co-production in care and, and how can we have more co-productive care homes. And co-production is all about um, reciprocal relationships, doing, doing with rather than to, um, and, and really looking at the assets of individuals rather than their deficits and problems okay. and, and bringing those to bear. So I kind of thought, well, okay, that sounds great. That sounds actually really, really kind of in keeping with what might be emerging, but let's just see how all that's playing out. How, how is this being interpreted and understood and enacted um, on the ground by people working in care? And maybe what are some of the blind spots, tensions and contradictions in this messy time mm. that are either you know, make, making it more or less easy, I suppose, for the potential of co-production to be reality or for it to become a little bit subsumed in the old ways of, of doing things. And when you say people, just to make it clear, so you're you're talking about the people that work in, in these establishments as opposed to the residents or their families or, uh, or so on. So the focus of your research was for, from a, like an employee or a... Or, or a or a carer perspective, is that right? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that that's probably one of the lim main limitations of the research. Um, but it was always at the outset, I, I'd kind of discovered this gap for the workforce perspective that there wasn't really much known about how um, particularly frontline care workers um, were experiencing this shift and what it meant to them. So to, to ground the research and give it a little bit more focus, that was that was the sort of boundaries put around it, that this would be about the workforce experience rather than the residents or the relatives experience. Yeah, and, 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 and that's, I, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I just wanted yeah. to make sure that I was um, I, I was understanding it correctly. Yeah, I think I'm um, stepping, I was stepping slightly into thinking, gosh, it's, uh, that was a question in my Viva defence. <laughs> <laughs> I have reasons for that choice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think I think you're right. You know, so I've got a, a friend of mine who who works in a in a care home, and the yeah, she she describes to me a daily struggle that she has between achieving the tasks that she's being asked to do mm. and providing the the care that she wants to provide mm. yeah so so her role is um I, I would argue quite fundamental she frames it as junior but they're quite different views but anyway so she her her role is one of kind of cleaning and and, and tidying and and changing bedding and you know that sort of things and yeah she she talks to me about how sometimes when she goes in to clean a resident's bathroom or to change their bed that what the resident wants is they just want to chat you know they just want to yeah. have somebody be with them for, for that period of time and you know for some she'll be able to do that while she's completing the task that she's being asked to do for some um you know she, she'll stop what she's doing and, and and you know have the have the discussion or, or be one of better phrase be present with um with the person whose room she's working in um, but she says that that kind of goes at odds with the the expectations or the standards that are set for what her role is, because what her role is measured on is how you know how men, how much cleaning she gets done, not how many residents she chats to and, and provides some some relief and respite to their day. If that makes sense. Um, yeah, and it she does says make she, sense. she struggles yeah. with that. Yeah, that that really really resonates with some of the main findings actually that. You know, people either go into this job because they've got a real sense of, of vocation, actually, or they've gone into it maybe not knowing exactly what they wanted to do. Some people go into care work straight from school, but discover this real love of just making a difference to someone's day. That's that's how participants described it. Mm. And so they've, they've gone into it or they've experienced real pride and um, joy in their work based on the relational elements, um, these conversations, the, the connection. Um, and you're right, what, just like, like your friend there, lots of care workers felt this incongruence um, between what, what they were wanting to do and sometimes at a high level what they were being asked to do at a policy level, let's say, you know, work in a person-centred, relationship-centred way. Yeah, okay. But ultimately, on a day-to-day -day basis, care workers said, and they use this expression, it's like we're timed, you know, you've got these really rigid set routines, um, tasks to do. And, and as you say, if that's what's getting measured, um, the relational can be um, can be really missed, can be. And, and, and interestingly, some care workers even felt guilty um, for spending time talking to residents, you know, they'd mm. say, oh, gosh, you know, I'm kind of I feel like I'm having a skive by sitting and having a chat 
for longer with with a resident when actually you know that's that's amazing that's a wonderful thing that they're doing and yet they're holding this sense of guilt for doing some of these these amazing things and having these conversations so yeah absolutely that that, that really really resonates so what are some of the things that that shape that then either you know either from did you uh, see now i'm doing my really i always criticize um hosts for asking like five questions at once and i've already done it <laughs> i've already done it once in this podcast where i asked you five different questions than you answered the last one on it but um so I'm, I'm kind of kicking myself going no stop asking lots of questions at the same time <laughs> um what did your research find or, or what if anything did your research find about the reasons for that you know for that discord between or that disconnect between what a policy might say and then what is actually happening kind of day to day yeah, so I suppose one of the things um, that for me was really, really interesting and, and perhaps not surprising is that there, there was no big bad guys. You know, there's no, I couldn't find any anyway of these people that are these lovers and custodians of bureaucratic systems, you know. Mm. Um, nobody wanted or nobody intentionally you set you out to... can't say to... that because then like, that, ruins the, the, that ruins another narrative that we have. Like, there's, these, there's, these, there's, these, there's these pen pushers somewhere that wear, that wear thin-rimmed glasses and, yeah. and have thin lips and, and suits and sit behind a desk looking at spreadsheets. Absolutely. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a slight tangent, but sadly, to my shame, I, I do regularly watch EastEnders and you notice on EastEnders if there's ever a manager <laughs> that comes in for a few episodes they totally fulfill that that kind of stereotype of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the pen pusher but anyway um tangent there but yeah so mm, I've lost sorry lost so, the, so, the so, so I, I interrupted you sorry you were talking about how no, okay. you didn't find the bad guys oh yeah yeah so nobody you know whether it was the inspectors or the senior managers everybody was kind of saying that they wanted the same thing you know that they understood that that what mattered to people was this the human stuff the relationships and the connections and yet you know we're all part of this deeply complex entangled inherited system and, and ways of doing things that that got in the way um so i suppose that's that's the kind of first thing that it, it certainly wasn't because of these these big bad guys there um but yeah things and again it, it comes back to the root ideas in some ways that because we've got this idea of, of caring as an action or a task and that's also the stuff that's easier to measure and to record indeed um that's playing a part you, you've also got this really really heavily scrutinized workforce as well with lots of you know we, we are, we've all seen we all remember the horror stories um the cases that make the media and care workers did speak about that and how that that impacted upon um their working days so you've got these these rules these professional standards mm -hmm. that even the senior managers were kind of saying god you know have you read them you know if you read them and if you followed them to the letter um, to use their words you would be robotic with residents um really because you, yeah that that's literally what somebody said so there was an awareness that these things um because we try and lock it all down in rules and, and things that can be written and prescribed, there's, there's a danger, isn't there? And I think, you know, let's not take away from the fact of the underfunding in older people's care as well. Yep. So time and resources came up again as something that was making it really, really difficult for care workers to be in the moment and, and be present with that resident um, because, you know, they were relying on agency workers and... They were covering this shift. They were running from task to and task to task. Um, so you've got these kind of very real things. But what was interesting was 
it wasn't just the lack of time that made it difficult to focus on the relational. It was the cognitive space that changed. So if, if, okay. if you're going from task to task to task, you're thinking about what you've got to get done next, are you simply able to, when you do have some time, kind of snap into this much more present, you know, much more slower way of being? I mean, I know myself that I find that hard. Um, that's why I said before this podcast, can we do it first thing in the morning before I get into the kind of emails and, and tasks of, of my yeah, day? Yeah. Because it just just puts me in a different mindset. So, you know, there's something about all these things, how they kind of combine um to make it more difficult, really, for, for people to have these uh, really relational moments with residents. Um, and yet they did have them, which was, you know, it's 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 remarkable, the kind of stories that you hear. Um, but it did feel very much in spite of um, a very bureaucratic system rather than, obviously, because of in some ways. Well, I, I guess it's, <clears throat> it's in, what, what I find interesting in that is the... The recognition, or the or the, the awareness, and or the recognition that the standards have been put together to protect. I guess are they there to protect? Is that their is that their dominant function? So the yes, I think you know for good intentions to keep people safe. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But but yeah, you've got awareness and or recognition from within this from within the sector that actually to follow all of these things to the letter would mean that we would be robotic with residents. Mm. Um, and, and yet those, and yet my, my perception anyway, as somebody who's outside of that sector is that there's nothing being done to change those standards or to, to shift them or amend them. Um, but I want to sense check that with somebody who, who knows the sector a lot better than I. So is, is there work being done to, to, to try and shift or to, to change that, um, that um, almost conflict conflicting aspect of it yes I think there there is work being done um more so in in pockets I would say and the the work that I found the most inspiring in this regard is by uh, a friend and somebody who was hugely inspirational for this PhD Nick Andrews who's done a lot of work in in Wales around this and really got into some good conversations really with with care workers with managers and with um, uh, people that are involved with setting the standards and inspecting to those standards around you know how how can we how can we humanize these a little bit and um think about what matters to the person uh, rather than assuming that these kinds of things that we think are important to people, you know, these basic safety things um, at the cost of actually living a life. You know, we all mm. take risks every day, don't we? Yeah. We kind of live with that to do the things that, that matter to us. So having some, there's no magic bullet, I don't think, but I do think it starts with just having some really difficult, probably, conversations about how we can disentangle some of these things and, and do things in a more a more human way. Um, and I think, you know, some of the findings were, for example, you know, the use of humour, how you speak to residents. You know, what one care worker kind of said that she felt that she was judged for having particular unique relationships because that could be seen within the standards as some kind of favoritism. But of course, again, you think of life and we all naturally form 
uh, stronger or, mm. or yeah, richer relationships with, with people more than others. And and when, when you're in a residential setting, um, and it's a home, isn't it? It's, it's the home for the residents and it's a very homely environment, or it should be. Um, you know, those kind of relationships are going to naturally, they should naturally be different and unique depending on the different individuals within it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of think that some of it relates to blind spots as well, that because of our inherited worldview, it's like the lens, isn't it, through which you, you see everything and it feels so pervasive and normal that you forget that you're looking through this lens. Mm. Um and you have blind spots and there's a brilliant, I think I can read you the quote from somebody called Kitwood who uh, wrote a lot about dementia care. And what he said, it links to the I-Thou relationship, he said, you know, the kind of care that we think is good care at the moment, uh, you know, you could be given the most accurate diagnosis, subjected to the most thorough assessments, provided with a highly detailed care plan, and given a place in the most pleasant surroundings without any meeting of the I-Thou ever having taken place. And, and and I think for me that kind of sums it up, that mm. we can just miss this stuff. We really can, unless we actually make a, an intentioned effort to focus on it and, and reflect on it and, and talk about it. And I guess the other thing on that, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a different idea to having a rules-based standardized approach to this sort of stuff and it's called practical wisdom um okay. and again there's a, a really brilliant ted talk by barry schwartz a psychologist who talks about you know how rules are encouraging us to do the wrong things basically in in healthcare. um and in a similar context he talks about in a hospital how you know if people followed the rules exactly you wouldn't get these wonderful moments of, of care um, and humanity and compassion that, that he discovered in, in his research. Mm. So what he talks about, practical wisdom rather than rules. So rules are great for when you don't have to think because you just follow them. You can go on autopilot. Um, I, w I worked in Malawi for three months and, and I remember them saying that, you know, that they had the most under-resourced hospital ever, this maternity hospital. They were wanting to really train their midwives in this very standardized protocol so that they didn't have to think because they had no time to think and, and that kind of made sense in, a, in an emergency situation like that um, maybe okay. it's like that for flying a plane I don't know but I guess if you want an I thou encounter rules are not going to give you that you, you want people in the moment to be able to I suppose it's sort of like common sense isn't it practical wisdom that you do the right things for the right reasons um and you can adapt and be responsive um and and, and do what matters to the person so it's it's much less of a rules driven thing and much more of a how do you help people um, use their practical wisdom for these situations because every situation is different people are not tins of beans are they so yeah how you can be much more responsive uh, to do what matters and I guess linked to that is help people talk these things through if, if it does seem like a complex or a grey area you know yeah. ethical grey area yeah, yeah. Um, then wouldn't it be brilliant if care workers felt they could have open conversations about these things with others um, rather than feel that they've got to hide it or feel guilty about it because they're not sure it fits with the rules so yeah so for me part of it is just encouraging a much more open um, 
an open culture around some of these things so that people can talk things through if it's if it is a gray area i really i really like that notion of practical wisdom Mm, it's great isn't it i don't i don't think common sense would work just because it no it's not quite the same and i think it's just got too much history with it you know so like um because there's there's the implication that if you don't use common sense you're stupid um, yeah, that's true. You know, uh-huh. so uh, I, I, yeah, I, I like the, um, I like that notion of practical wisdom. Um, so what's what's and I think we've touched on what maybe one or two of these areas already. But what surprised you most in your in your research and your findings? So, well, yeah. So I suppose some of the things that surprised me were this kind of thing about well, there's no bad guys hiding behind, yeah, yeah, behind yeah. the corner with their pens. Um, and, and, and the guilt, I suppose, that some care workers felt for doing um, amazing things. But I guess um, maybe more broadly than that, I probably went into the PhD thinking that really what everybody needed, what society needs, is a shift in worldview. Um, and I kind of feel like that's a bit naive now, a bit utopian, um, probably a little bit arrogant, actually, because I guess okay. hidden within that belief is an assumption that my worldview um was the right, you know, was the best worldview or something, yeah, you know, yeah, and everybody else is living with these outdated um, worldviews. But yes, yeah, so I guess what what really struck me was the fact that actually a shift in thinking isn't enough, and and actually care workers were naturally wanting to work in these ways. It was the culture. Um, and the routines of the day, if you like, that that were making that difficult, and. You know, I would hear things from managers that would say, oh, you know, care workers, they're very task focused and maybe they need some training on, on person-centered care so they're not so task focused as if going on a, you know, it might be a brilliant training course. I'm sure it would be. But if you then go back to exactly the same culture that encourages you to be task focused yeah. and measures you on tasks and rewards you on how many tasks you get done, well, a shift in thinking, if a shift in thinking is is part of it, is actually going to become quite frustrating for people that they've had this shift in thinking, they want to work in these ways, and, and actually feel that it's very hard to do so within the prevailing culture. So, yeah, so that that was a big a big shift, um, and with that, a huge compassion and appreciation and sense of awe actually for the amazing work that that these care workers um, and everybody actually involved with um, the care homes that I spoke to were actually achieving you know against all the odds in some ways yeah. and in a, in a in a line of work that doesn't attract um as much reward financially as much reward kind of in terms of um i can't think of the word you know reputation or whatever like i just don't think we value care work enough and, and get a sense of these brilliant moments that care workers were having so yeah so that that certainly developed um mm. And yeah. you, so you, you mentioned brilliant moments, Anna. I remember when we spoke um, uh, like back last year, you talked about um, beautiful moments of connection. Mm. And, I, and I really love that. I mean, there's, that's, that's another coin, another turn of phrase that you've coined in the, in, the, in, the, in the duration of this podcast that I've really liked. So tell me more about that, about those beautiful moments of connection. 
Yeah, sure. Well, I have to say, I wish I had coined it, but it wasn't my phrase. Um, oh, was it not? This, okay. No, no. It was a phrase that really resonated with me when I was interpreting the findings and became a really useful way to conceptualize some of these things that were happening. Because what, what care workers, um, when I was speaking to care workers about what great care meant to them, what co-productive care meant to them, they didn't speak about a process or anything kind of standardized, even if it was an outcomes focused personalized process that that's really not what they spoke about they spoke about very spontaneous unplanned um moments of connection you know whether that was brilliant conversations um or whether it was just these these encounters that needed no words but there was you know a real sense of genuine connection felt there so it was a term um coined by Owen and Mayer um, as part of their work on something called My Home Life, which okay. is a social movement in uh, residential care for older people, encouraging more relationship-focused ways of working. So I can give you some of that stuff in, yeah, the, yeah, in the references. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so no, it was a huge, huge inspiration um, to kind of come across that term. Um, and, yeah, just really helped conceptualise some of what came out of the findings as these moments of connection and, and unplanned as I say which was which was the interesting stuff so the good stuff isn't the stuff that you can plan for quite often <laughs> it's it's, just, it's like life isn't it yeah you know, life is what happens whilst you're making plans but that's it isn't it because if you then because I, I, I can imagine right that if I don't know if it's fair to say but I'll say it anyway um that a um a, a passionate and energized and determined care home manager owner would be like right beautiful moments of connection love that phrase mm. they're great they're amazing we want them to happen so let's have more of those and and yet in the way that you just the way you've described them is actually you can't say i want more of those they 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 just happen um so is it yeah so I, I can, yeah, I can imagine like we then start to measure beautiful moments of connection, which then ruins the point of, uh, of a beautiful moment yeah, of connection. I know. Do you, do you know what I, mean? <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, we're very good at kind of um, killing something, aren't we? By by trying to lock it down or um, prescribing it, or yeah. Um, gosh, you know, I end up being full of quotes and, and can never remember who says them. But there is a brilliant quote. I think this might be a Ken Wilber quote. Um, Apologies if not, but what he says, I think, is that these moments, he, he's using a totally different context here, but these kind of moments are accidents. But what you can do is make yourself more accident prone. Okay, <laughs> um, right. And I, so for me, using that idea, it's about how you can, um, I think you can have an intention, you know, you can foster a kind of intention um to be open for these moments and you can help people have the kind of headspace again being this kind of cognitive space yeah. where these moments are more likely and we know what makes them less likely it's all that kind of stuff about being you know rushed from task to task to task um etc etc um and, and too much focus on paperwork you know trying to lock everything down in in paper rather than just actually having a moment with the person themselves so there's all these kind of things that get in the way um and how could we actually help people have the kind of headspace um that these moments are more likely to naturally and spontaneously arise um yeah, is where my thinking goes on that one. Yeah, and and I think I, I'm 
our discussion has taken me to places now where I'm thinking about, and it may be unfair of me to do so, but I think there's a there's a lot of overlap between um, some of the principles that you're talking about, or some of the principles that you found in your research, and, and the workplace in general, really. Yeah. You know, so if I think about the the role of a manager, you know, the role of a, a manager, whether it be in a care home or or wherever, is quite bureaucratized. You know, in terms of the processes you have to follow, the policies you have to adhere to, the guidelines you need to, to um, you know, uh, uphold, all of those sorts of things. And yet, um, the things that that matter the most, or the things that shape culture the most, at least in in my experience and the research that I do, are those unplanned, spontaneous things. You know, mm. they're, they're the moments where where the manager puts down their their pen and paper, and she says, "Are you all right?" Yeah. You know, and and then and then a discussion happens off the back of that that, that you that you weren't necessarily expecting, or it's where um, you know a, a manager says, "You know what? Go home. You've done enough this week. Just go." You know, and 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 it's not about having a you know a HR person may want to then create a policy for what you know what are the conditions that allow you to say to a member of your team you can go home and how, how will you be consistent in your application of your go home instruction um but actually it's not about that you know it's about the um and I, and I guess I come back to the um to the wisdom uh, quote that you talked about earlier on the practical wisdom you know the practical wisdom is that if you can see somebody in your team is exhausted and you know they've worked super yeah. you know incredibly hard that week the practical wisdom is tell them to go home yeah. Um, but it doesn't need a, a policy or a, or a process or um, all those sorts of things to go along with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine if we had processes and standards to guide our lives, you know, just that it, it would be it would be crazy, wouldn't it? And you can kind of see that for yourself. And then yet we think we need all these things um, in the workplace. Mm. So, yeah, I think there's a, a lot of resonances there and just how we help people. Um, almost unlearn some of the things that in the previous, you know, in the mechanistic worldview are associated with being a good manager. How do we unlearn some of those and make it easier for people to to bring their, you know, their full selves, their human selves to the workplace and, as you say, kind of bring that practical wisdom to do the right thing, really, mm. for their colleagues. And how, so stick in there with that sort of train of thought for a moment then. How have you taken sort of the the fine when I say the findings I don't mean like the findings that went into your thesis or the findings that mm. have come out in the paper but mm. in terms of the the things that you find or the things that you've learned from your experience of doing that research how have you how has that affected your practice how has that affected your your approaches in in work yeah sure so I suppose first of all um after the research, which was with care home staff, there was then a move to look at actually how, how can we do, how can we encourage more relationship centred care in home care as well? So care workers that work in people's own homes okay, yeah. and using some of the, as you say, some of the kind of insights, I guess, that came from um, the project was, first of all, let's let's start with the care workers rather than have something prescribed from the top and, and just keep it really simple, you know, just by chatting to people about what, what matters to you in your day, you know, how come you wanted to be in care and what now is the most rewarding? 
Um, and what, what care workers said time and time again was, it's all the wee things. Ugh, it's just all the wee things. And they were often quite dismissive about it, like it was nothing. And yet these wee things were amazing. They were the things that made the hugest of differences to, to people. So we started there. Um, but then used some of the examples of the wee things that might be, you know, does that does that touch on something that's not um, prescribed in the standards? And therefore, what does that mean? Because it's self-evidently the, the right thing to do for that person yeah. to actually have some conversations with then the managers who felt quite responsible um, for ensuring the quality of care and, and the upholding of these standards to just get into some conversations about what, what what kind of things do these examples throw up for you you know what 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 tensions does that bring up what dilemmas and and encouraging much more open conversations i suppose that was the first really practical thing but then opening it up much more broadly um i'm no longer with uh, I'm no longer linked to health and social care, but I'm in a part of the wider HR team now, okay. so much more of a corporate um, wide role for the council. Um, and for the last year, uh, yep, yeah, it has been just over a year, really just kind of living, breathing, and actually dreaming quite often about <laughs> this this project, which has um, been about a performance framework that is all centred on relationships and the full person, you know, being a human at work um, and that performance, yeah, do you know what? That's actually just a byproduct of, of all these different things. Um, so, yeah, been involved with lots and lots of development workshops for managers um, to actually explore over two days in a very small group, maximum um, 10 people, how, you know, why do relationships matter? You know, how do we focus on the full person at work? How do you reveal your full self? Yeah, you know, yeah. so you can be real in your conversations with others and j just exploring all the different kind of things that that throws up for people um, over two days. And, and that's really been fascinating. And uh, one of our, uh, what we call early adopters. So we picked six teams that really wanted to get behind this from the beginning, um, try things out was in fact um, a care home uh, for older people oh, okay. so that's it's almost kind of come full circle in some ways so it's been really really fascinating to hear from uh, the team leader uh, of that care home who's been a total champion of this approach really um, to hear the difference that it's made just by putting an emphasis on conversations on the the full person so you know asking care workers to work in person-centered relationship ways brilliant but they need to experience that themselves to be mm. treated as a, yeah, yeah. a full person not just what they do but who they are actually um so just by changing the emphasis um and, and much more emphasis for example in their one-to-ones on you know how are you doing as you say you know rather than let's get straight to the tasks and how many care plans are up to date and this that and the other just how are you what, what's going on for you how's your week been what have you learned from that what's been challenging all, all yeah, these kind yeah. of things so just that shift in emphasis um hearing what a difference that's made um in their care home has been really interesting in in light of those findings so yeah Oh, I might have to book you in for another podcast to talk about that some more. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a pleasure. Yeah, because I, I, I guess it's a, a, a maybe. So you said it's been going a year. The project now. 
Um, yeah, well, it's been a year since, almost a year since it was launched. It was launched um, April last year, um, but there's obviously the development and, and whatnot that, that led up to that. And the development itself was, was quite interesting because that was what we tried to do was not go away in a darkened room and invent something, but to um, genuinely kind of co-produce it with, with different teams um, to find out, well, you know, what, what would work for you, what's going to be... What's going to be flexible enough as a framework that's not going to get in the way of you having these brilliant conversations? Because that's often as much of the challenge as anything. Yeah, yeah, um, so, yeah, so it'd been in development, um, you know, a year or so before that. Um, but, yeah, it, it's been launched almost a year. Okay. So can, can, uh, I, I want to kind of bagsy, if, if that's, a, that's a very Bristolian term that I know of. <laughs> I want to reserve... Um, some of your time then later on in the year so maybe like August time maybe August September time something like that where where you're kind of over a year in uh, to then explore right okay have you have you found it you know how's it been mm. how have people found it um, you know what what are you finding in terms of because um, we've got some of the in, you know the short-term um, impact that you were talking about you know you're alluding to earlier on in terms of some of the things that have come from the from the experience of implementing it in the care home um but yeah i'm interested to to hear more about you know more more and from a, a wider kind of perspective as well yeah totally i'd be up for that okay that sounds good all right um uh i guess i want to do a real ch- a real tack change and ask it and it's a bit of a selfish question because because uh, <laughs> at some point you know i Having having completed my MSc a couple of years ago, uh, I, I know that PhD I would like that to happen at some point. So I'm going to be a little bit selfish, if I may, as a host, and say, um, how how was doing a PhD and working? So yeah, do, doing a PhD and working it has its pros and cons, of course, as you can imagine. Um, it's it at times was was really hard I mean I'm not gonna lie I did have a moment I think it was about halfway through where I thought gosh you know is this is this just too much and it was at a stage when it was challenging to see how some of the stuff would would all come together because I'd pick such vast topics if you like but yeah I suppose for me it was about finding the right way of working for me so I would almost put it out of my mind not out of my mind, that's wrong, because it was always kind of sat there and I was noticing things. But in terms of giving myself stuff to actually work on, I wouldn't do that during the working week. Um, I'd compress my hours, so I had every Friday off. And yeah. I would use um, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday to really then go in to just immerse myself in it. And, and that really worked for me. Um, what it did do, and this is a, it just gave me a different way of, of looking at the, the workplace. You know, I was looking at it through different eyes, um, which was fantastic. You know, that it really enhanced my working life by studying at the same time. Um, mm. It helped it feel really grounded, really relevant um, to, to my own life, as, as, as well as it being grounded in that kind of practical context. So for me, it was the way to do it. You know, um, it was, it was. Yeah, brilliant. And it was a journey and I miss it now, you know, as much as I don't miss, <laughs> I am enjoying having weekends where I can just wake up and think, hmm, what shall I do today? Rather than have all my, you know, my actions for the for the PhD planned out. That's brilliant. But on the other hand, I do miss the kind of, um, yeah, the, the just that 
that quest, that journey that you're on when you do a PhD and just, yeah, the different way of seeing things that that brings. Mm. Okay, thank you. That was my self-indulgent moment. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so is there um, is there anything else then that you think is important? Um, yeah, so we, we said that this podcast is about emotion at work and humanising work. And we've talked about a whole host of things along that, you know, in terms of the change in society, but also change in work and, and how that you know, kind of links in with um, a desire for, for process and bureaucracy and certainty. And, and actually what matters the most to people appears to be the, the antithesis of that. So is there anything else that you're thinking, feeling or want to say or that you think the list is important for the listeners to hear? Hmm. I think I would just maybe leave it with something that was put to me by one of my key theoretical informants with all this that that certainly gave me food for thought which is you know we need to relate this stuff to our own lives rather than see it as something separate and out there so what he asked me was to notice in my own life how i command and control um rather than be in the moment be responsive um and it's quite fascinating when you look at that because on the one hand you can really believe in in something and yet find it quite hard to do and and if you think about how you organize your days how you plan your lives um yeah it it can just be quite revealing to think about how this mindset plays out in in a very grounded everyday sense Mm -hmm. Um, and just to kind of notice these things i guess i'll maybe just leave that as as food for thought okay can I can I can I not let you leave that as food for thought? Can I ask can I, <laughs> can I ask you for one example? What what you know? For, so when you, when you thought about it for your life, then um, would you be willing to share one one example of how you thought? Oh yeah, you know what? I that I I do that in that way, and that stops me doing it. Yeah, well, I guess you know it's this thing of for me self improvement. You know, I, I love self improvement. I'm always interested in you know whether it's mindfulness, exploring that, or some kind of new new hobby or new subject to explore Mm. and and that's great except sometimes I notice that I can turn that into something very mechanistic you know must get up at this time every day and have a morning routine and start the day Ah, with 10 minutes meditating blah 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 and actually how useful is that really um to do that so just noticing the the mindset that I bring to some of those things um was quite fascinating and, and and doing that a lot um yeah, I also recently went on a seven-day silent meditation, well, mostly silent meditation retreat. Oh, I would say. wow. How was that? And I kind of thought, well, it was amazing, actually. It was um, one of the best things I've ever done, one of the hardest things as well. Um, and, and, it, and it really showed to myself some of the the things that we tell ourselves that, that are maybe not true. So, you know, this thing of, ah, well, if I had time, if I didn't have distractions, I'd be able to be in this kind of mode. Well, (laughs) what I found was even with no distractions, other than literally just sitting and noticing things, my mind would still be very, very task focused quite often. Um, It's really annoying. I was expecting to have all these amazing moments of enlightenment and, you know, (laughs) one with whatever. And actually what it showed me was just (laughs) how um, how stuck my mind can get in in some of these ways of ways of being. So, yeah, that was quite interesting. And what I noticed was I would get these insights. But rather than just kind of sitting with them or, or being in the experience, I would be thinking, ah, I can weave that into my next workshop about this kind of stuff or I can share this as a story with people, you know. Ah, so I was always okay. one one step ahead um, 
and that got in the way of, of these things like being present and being open to things and being responsive and spontaneous. So, yes, uh, that would be my example. That's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so I've, I've taken lots of notes as, um, as we've worked our way through. Uh, and so I, I'm going to, um, if I send them across to you, would you mind then adding kind of links to either books or um, papers or, I mean, the TED Talks and stuff I'll be able to find, but some of the authors that you mentioned, I wrote down like phonetically how I th- think their name might be spelt. Mm-hmm. Um, but, <laughs> but I don't know if that's accurate or not. So if, if I send you that over, would you mind just kind of pinging that back with some links so that if uh, if our listeners wanted to do more reading, more, uh, more exploration, then they've got uh, ways and means to be able to go and do that. Would that be okay? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so some some standard guests then, some standard guests. There you go. I'm mixing things together. Some standard questions that I ask our guests then. Um, is is there anybody that you would recommend? Anybody you would suggest that we need that that I need to go and seek out and get on the podcast? Hmm. In relation to this particular topic, or just because I think they're no, not necessarily specific. Just I guess somebody that you either think has got an interesting story to tell, or that you think you'd like to listen to, or you'd like to hear from. Hmm. Okay. Dog. Um. Can I come back to you on that one with the the links and the references? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. I'll give that give that a little bit of thought. Okay. So we'll put links to we'll we'll uh, send me that back, and then we'll also have links to um, books and TED talks and all those sorts of things in the uh, in the show notes for our listeners as well. Okay. Dog. Okay. So my final question then, is there anything else then that you're thinking, feeling, want to say before I take us into the outro um, and wrap the podcast up? No, I don't think there is. Okay. In that case then, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. Um, Pleasure. I've really enjoyed it and I'm excited already for the next instalment um, to hear more about how, <laughs> uh, how you've taken what you found in your PhD research and then applied it into, uh, into a, a slightly different yet similar um, context and setting and yeah I've really really enjoyed today so thank you so much for your time yeah me too thank you very much thanks Sarah take care take care bye bye you've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.